Good morning, Todd. Good morning, Laura. How you doing? Back to the next page. I'm good, good, good. What, 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 yeah. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. I'm, I've got my caffeine in my body. I am awake. The sun is gorgeous here in sunny Los Angeles. Oh, I'm jealous. Um, it's slightly overcast here, so... Oh, yeah. I just okay, got back well. um, last, I just recently got back. I was out on uh, a, a ship with my one man concert and um, we were, I was out for a week and went to Cabo, which was really, really, really fun. Uh, you know, horrible job, horrible. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so hard. horrible. It was cool because the audiences, I mean, live theater is starting to come back after COVID. So it was nice to have That's that. That's amazing. Have that. Yeah. And what have you been up to? Well, I have to say I probably had one of the busiest weeks of my entire life this week. <laughs> Really? Which was kicked off by a lovely Monday. I actually went, took the kids over, hung out with Madison and Cullen. You know, it's kind of hard to have real meaningful conversations when your children are just constantly around you. But it was, right. it was a really great time. And I think kind of proof that I, we're getting some perks from this whole uh, thing. <laughs> I get to at least get some dinner. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've really been pushing hard this week to get the, the podcast like launched so yeah. when whenever people hear this we'll have gotten through the hump of it by currently pushing everything trying to get you know be as obnoxious as possible so excited um, we're just excited. So, so excited super pumped about that i mean we have bridge run going on right now the charleston cooper river bridge run for those that don't know about it it's an enormous event that 20,000 people come in for so everybody at my restaurant has been panicking and back in the day, um, Oprah ran it. Really? Yeah, Oprah. Oprah has um, had or has a house on uh, in Wild Dunes. Well, we need to go drive around Wild Dunes. I did not know this. <laughs> yeah, uh, she did I'm the bridge sorry. run when she. It was when her in her fitness days when she was you know really really yeah. really um, you know skinny and fit. She she came to uh, she did a big uh, episode. Oh, that's Charleston. awesome. Well, yeah. I didn't know that. I'm gonna go now stalk her house. But um, and then another thing that I just like. It's almost comical at this point, but starting dance lessons for Dancing with the Stars. Oh, yeah, you're um, doing that. So they're doing a local Dancing with the Stars in Charleston. Yes, June 17th. Oh, my Um, goodness. Are you ready? No, I'm not even close. We're not even allowed to practice choreography until eight weeks beforehand. So now it's just them testing me out to see if I can, like, physically move around and what, what I'm good at and all that. So... It's it's starting, which is really awesome. But I am still just as nervous as I was when. <laughs> You're about to be was, so busy. Oh, you don't even know. And moving, moving, moving. Yeah, but you know, this is just like I think kind of leads us into how awesome of this interview with Regina Levert or Levert or however you want to uh, pronounce it. She doesn't seem to mind either way. Um, I always say uh, Regina Levert, but she says Regina Levert. Yes, but, you know, it was, as she said, America ruined her name. It was LaVare. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just think that the interview itself, it, you know, kind of takeaway was get after it. You know, you got to live life. You got to do stuff. So even though I'm going to be super busy, I'm okay with it. Right. But overall, I feel like the interview really just was very eye-opening. And I think that our guests are really going to really enjoy this. Even it's, if you have no was, idea who she is, like she, I like think it was is, a very important interview. Yes, and I think that um, it, it can be very eye-opening and informative, and uh, it was it was very, uh, I don't know, I kind of felt like really really jazzed to go out and do 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 work, you know, do better, um, do better, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. You, you do good as. Um, but uh, <laughs> let me go ahead and read a little bit about um, our wonderful guest. Uh, Regina Lavere uh, was such a shy kid that it wasn't until college that she discovered her love for the arts. Shortly after passing Acting 101 for non-majors, Regina started a journey that has gifted her with seeing most of the world. While singing and dancing in many tours and productions in Europe, Asia, Australia, and the United States, Regina became a certified scuba diver, ziplined in the Costa Rican rainforest, sung in the Sydney Opera House, eaten scorpion in Singapore, kayaked with a school of dolphins, and and cage-died with sharks in Hawaii, and shot grade four rapids in New Zealand. Wow. Cool. Regina's love of singing is in her blood. She's a she is a she's proud to count the late Gerald Lavare of the R and B group Lavare and his father, Eddie Lavare of the Grammy Hall of Fame R and B group the OJ's Love Train. Not a love train, um, which is the family who inspired her. Next up, she's trying to hit a layup like her Cleveland Cavalier cousin, Karis Lavert. Karis Lavert. Um, Karis Lavert. Yeah, that's a sports person. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, we're, Dodd, Dodd's catching up. I'm working but really hard to understand trying. sports. Yeah, we'll get there. Well, well yeah. Anywho. Hopefully. Anyway, I think you're really. They're really going to enjoy this interview. I agree. Well, without any further ado, introducing Regina Lavere. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hi, Regina. Morning. Hi. Welcome, Regina Lavere, to the program. I love that you say my name like that with the French accent. I was wondering if that is just the way Todd says it. Or because all your other uh, relatives are Levert, right? Yeah, we've given in to the American pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been calling you Levert, so I, I think it's appropriate. Yes, I like it. Yeah, it's like Colbert is actually Colbert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I know that you you and uh, Todd go go pretty yes, far back. Yes, do. And uh, I, how did you guys meet? We met while we were performing for. Princess Cruises. I came out as a replacement. She for, saved the day. Uh, one of the singers that went away, and 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 that's how we met. And it was instantly like this. You know, on the on the cruise ships, anyone who's worked on them, uh, you know that you have. It's kind of a crapshoot with the personalities that go get together in one cast. And um, we just got lucky. On a know? floating I tin can in the ocean. Right <laughs> and you know, he was my people. He was my community. It was beautiful. That's awesome. Well, that's kind of how I feel like Todd and I. We just, you know, when we met, we're just like, all right, we're besties now. Um, so, you know, that's a little compliment to Todd. You get along with all kinds of wonderful people, but they have to be Guys, shucks, shucks. So anyways, uh. Todd knows a lot about you, but I am just meeting you. So I would love to know a little bit more about yourself, like where you grew up and what your interests were before you got into form, uh, performance later. Yeah, well, I am born and raised in Los Angeles, California. That is where I am from. Um, my dad is from Alabama. My mom is from Belize. And we, you know, they both met here in Cali and created moi. <laughs> the best thing they ever did. You know, my, I have a twin sister. Fun fact. Also, another fun fact. I was born with six fingers. Oh, my gosh. I saw that on your website. And I was yes. like, I think she'd be willing to I thought that was a joke. You were actually not born with six fingers. I was actually born with six fingers. My twin was as well. And my mom was too. Wow. And it was right here on the, the pinky. And I remember having the surgery to get it cut off when I was two years old. 
Remember just laying on the table and the lights and the the surgeon. Yeah. That is so nuts. Did you have, I I wonder if there's anybody that like lets, like, you know, basically wants to keep them and then like lets them grow, like lets them grow up and like be like, then you make the decision. I I saw a guy in Florida at a Thai restaurant and it was when I was working for Princess Cruz, as a matter of fact. And we had our our port day in in Fort Lauderdale, went to this Thai restaurant. He came and took over and I was like, what's with the two thumbs? So he just (laughs) had like growing out of the side there. I'm like. You made it work, sir. You made it work. Yeah. I mean, would you think that would make you like a better piano player? Like, or is it just oh my not? Goodness. I'm sorry. You know what? Sadly, it wouldn't have been. I wish. It wasn't workable, though. Ultimately, it would have just grown. It would have looked like a finger, but there's no bone in there. It was cartilage. Oh, I see. So it would not have been at workable. It just would have been like something to talk about at parties. Uh, Anne Bolin, who was one of the six wives of Henry VIII, had six fingers. Hey, girl. Hey. Maybe no, you're, you're royalty. I better get someone that's <laughs> yes. 23 and me. I need to do that whole yeah, Maybe you mean that. My middle name's Anne Hey, Is that a coincidence? Yeah. I don't know. Well, what was the what was the final push for you to get involved in performing? Like, what was the, the, the main you thing? You know, I was a very shy kid. And the, so shy that notes would come home from school where my teacher was like, is something wrong with her? Because uh, she's not talking. <laughs> she seems like, should we have her checked out? Because what's happening? And I was just super shy. My sister, my twin sister, was absolutely the opposite of me. Very outgoing, very gregarious. I mean, she was always getting in trouble, always speaking too much. I was a reader. I was very much the quiet bookworm. And... I think I got tired of, of living. I knew that there was more that I wanted to say. I wanted to, you know, ways I wanted to express myself. I didn't really have full confidence that anything I had to say would be important or interesting or compelling in any way. So I think when I first got into acting, I thought, oh, my God, these, these words are provided for me. I can just show up and bring myself to it. And my job is done. I don't have to worry about the words. And that's how it started out for me. And I actually, I went to Cal State Fullerton and I had a professor, oh, loved him so much, my mentor, Dr. Young. And um, I remember I was at a class called Intro to Oral Interpretation. And we had to choose a poem, interpret it, as you could imagine. And at the time, my grandmother had passed away. And I chose Death Be Not Proud by John Donne. And it was really just powerful to me and had a lot of significance because of that. So I remember standing up in class and doing this poem. And I wasn't thinking about acting at all, you know, because it was, I just did it. And at the end of the class, he came up to me and said, have you ever thought about acting? I think you should explore that. I think you should should do that. You know, it's kind of a crazy world, but uh, I think you you it would be a waste of your of your talent if you didn't do it. And that's how I got started. And ultimately, when he first asked me, I was like, "Hell no, I don't want to be an actor. These people are freaks." You know, so I'm like, <laughs> Well, you know, no offense, Todd. It's okay. (laughs) I am. I'm a happy actor. Yeah. That's that is really how it started. That's awesome. That's how it started. Yeah. That's super cool. I mean, and and I guess one of the things too is that you know, uh, you didn't get into this till college, really. Yeah. But that you're basically surrounded by musical performers and and your whole family. Um, Yeah. Could you could you maybe tell us kind of like your relationship with them and and did that what your views and opinions kind of were of their you know music careers and all of that yeah well you know like like a lot of black families you grow up in the church 
And we gospel and singing was always a part of what we did. It wasn't really looked at as something extraordinary. It's just something that you do. And on my dad's side, on my mom's side, I love this. I say I get my heart from my and from my mom because they can't really sing. But they're people. But, but, but you love, can. So I, don't I got know. you got the heart from them and. Um, Although I do have a, a huge heart for people who just like give it. That's I really don't care vocals at the end of the day. I mean, it's a sidebar. But if that heart is there and that passion, I'm telling you my story. I mean it. You know, then it's that's everything. That's I really don't care about the, you know the actual quality of the voice. It, it's it's nice to hear a pretty voice, but that's more important to me. But on my dad's side, these people could sing and they sang hard. We went. I remember going to family reunions in Alabama, and there was this woman. She played on a piano, an upright piano. It probably had about 10 broken keys. I mean, it was like that dead keys when you hit it, it just doesn't do anything. And this, I don't know how she made that piano sound like, I mean, like a, the, the most beautiful baby grand that's ever been. She could play this piano. She could sing. My dad sang. Everybody sang. And on his side of the family... There, when we went to family reunions, we had uh, the OJs. We would have them in Ohio. They grew up, they were in Shaker Heights. We would always have the family reunions and then go to their homes afterwards for an after party. So we would go there and, and then Gerald and Sean were there and they would sing. And, and then, you know, they became a group and followed in their dad's footsteps. God rest their souls. And um, it was something that we always did. I never really thought about it for me in terms of using it as a career tool until much later like in when I was in college. Yeah, for the listeners out there, your your dad is Eddie Levert, or do we want to go French with him? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's my dad's cousin. His Eddie's dad and my dad were brothers. Okay. All right. Yeah, and they were so, members so of the OJs. Cousins. Yeah, and they were members of the OJs. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. is just cool. so cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm tell. I was yeah. saying this before we started. I was listening to to the OJ's while I was getting ready for this, and it just like got me in the in the groove, but almost too much of like the groove of not preparing <laughs> and just listening. <laughs> so very talented family. That I'm a little oh, bit yeah, jealous. Oh no, they were good. They are good. Eternus is all about you. Eternus Life Coaching is all about partnering with clients in a thought-provoking and creative process that inspires them to maximize their personal and professional potential. Eternus believes in making your dreams and goals a reality, and their coaches know just how to do that. Whether you're just starting out or looking to bolster your current transformation, they have you covered. Leveraged by the International Coaching Federation and founded by Chris Wingator, Eternus coaches develop and maintain an effective coaching plan with attainable results. Eternus offers flexible plans and rates to allow all people to benefit from this rewarding creative process. So don't hesitate. If you want to unlock your full potential, begin your journey with Eternus Coaching today. Visit www.eternuslife.com and let Eternus help you manage progress and maintain accountability in achieving your highest potential. Follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Eternus Life. What do you think with your family and you being in the entertainment business, what do you think uh, is the biggest misconception about being a performer? Oh, man. I a think professional performer. Pro yeah. 
I think people think let's, the let's job. Let's make the distinction. <laughs> okay. All right. I was going to say, I mean. Because, I mean, people can perform in their shower all day long. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's oh, true. man. I really think it's it's the fortitude. I mean, the perseverance that you have to do to stick it everything that it takes from you emotionally to stick it out because at a certain level talent is a given and so it's about really I find a lot of times about making peace between your psyche your head your heart your career and what you do and trying to find a balance so that you can work and stay in a healthy place physically mentally emotionally um I think that's the hardest part. I mean, there's so much that if we do that is just like fun and laughter and we're celebrating and we're acting and we're singing and we're dancing. And I think the flip side of that about how to live that life successfully, that's what's hard. That I think that is what's hard is, is how to live that life and balance everything out. And I think the misconception is, is that it's way easier than it actually is. <laughs> no, the road is, <laughs> the struggle is real. <laughs> yes, it is very real. What well, could um, you give us like one example of like I don't know the when the struggle was the realist with being on the road? Oh boy! Well, you know what? I can give you an example. What I thought about first with the struggle being real is relationships. That's hard. Relationships are hard. I actually had a moment uh, in twenty nineteen where I had muscle tension dysphonia, and. Oh, what it is, is anxiety, really, that is so intense that it starts to affect, it affects me where I work, which was my, my voice and my throat, where I would get to a certain point, I like cue the voice break, um, this, <laughs> we get to a certain point where I it would feel like my cords were being like grabbed, like someone had both their hands, uh, hands like in a fist around my cords, and it would just stop. I couldn't generate any sound. It started to feel choked. Like, you know, it was, and I couldn't control it. And it was all emotionally based that I went to a vocal coach and she sent me to a speech therapist and she said, what's going on in your life? And I was like, my marriage is in trouble. I don't think we're going to make it. And that is ultimately what it was. I spent, wow, you know, like almost two years. And it was really at the top of the pandemic that I was, you know, finally getting to the place where I'm like, I can't go on like this. It's starting to affect my livelihood. And I was starting to be very nervous about opening my mouth. I wasn't sure about what was going to come out. And I have never had any vocal issues in the past. I was about to so say, was, knowing you, you're such a, you're such a smart, you know, very, very trained singer. So it's, you know, it's it to hear, to hear you having any vocal problems, you knew something had to be wrong because you knew it wasn't uh, damaged chords. Yeah. But it was actually it was, an, an emotional, um, I guess, uh, reaction. Yeah. Yeah. It was absolutely an emotional response to what was happening to me in my life. And the, the minute that the, that speech therapist said, you know, asked me what was going on. I was like, Oh my God, this is what this connection is because I couldn't figure it out and I couldn't get it to stop. And so really when the pandemic happened, it was a bit of a relief for me at that moment because it kind of took me away and gave me time to heal all that and to resolve all that. And, and so that it, it wasn't a part of, of, um, in, you know, at the back of my mind, like this little gremlin, like, when is it going to pop out? When is it going to destroy me? When am I going to open my mouth in front of a bunch of people? Something horrible is going to come out. And they're like, we knew you were a fraud, you know, and we, you know, we were waiting for this moment and here it is. And that all ran at the back of my, was running at the back of my mind. Well, and I was juggling a couple of shows at that time. Right. You were doing, um, Rock of Ages, um, mm -hmm. with, for all of you in, in LA. Um, she was with, uh, Nick Cordero. 
Uh, and who, people uh, all who, over the world that also might be interested. Okay, Todd, let's not yeah. just just because y'all are in LA and you're big shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nick Cordero um, passed. Uh, he um, his uh, his wife Amanda Klutz Klutz uh-huh. Klutz uh, is now a host on the Talk uh-huh. Talk, and uh, and she was also with on Dancing with the Stars recently. But um, their his struggle with COVID he was in a coma for uh, a month. You were you had been uh, uh, really in close contact with them, and so that was going on. You talk about trauma. I mean. I, I can't imagine for them, but you were you were going through this in Rock of Ages, yeah. Um, when when this started happening, right? And your marriage, yeah. um, so all of this went down in 2019. Started in 2019 and kind of culminated at February 2020. Really, it was the the month before everything shut down. Is when I was like, okay, my body's telling me this is not something that's sustainable. It's not sustainable. So I started, you know, resolving it. Then that's when I made my decision. Things started to kind of get get better from there and then when the when the pandemic happened it kind of gave me that space to heal and get back to it I mean it was it was a crazy time I remember being scoped and there was nothing I mean that was a relief when you can go that was the first thing you do right is you go and you get scoped to make sure your cords don't have any nodes or anything and I was fine so I thought what's happening you know it was nuts what did you do to to kind of heal that part of you since it was emotional like what what were kind of the steps you took well, once I got myself out of the marital limbo I was in and decided that this is no longer working for my life, that was kind of the beginning of my healing. And I, you know, and I took a real break. I didn't sing at the top of the, for maybe four months, five months. And how long were you married, Regina? Ten years. Wow. Wow. Ten years. Big, big shift. Yeah. And so it took a while to work it all out, but that's definitely when that healing began and then having the time off to work it out and, and, um, you know, and talk to my therapist about it and, and figure out all the things that went into me getting there and figuring out how to not go there again is a thing. And it's so much about self-awareness, right? I feel like that is the biggest gift you can give to yourself is self-awareness, you know, and not being afraid to say things for what they are. Don't hide. And don't, don't, you know, just, just face, face your truth. And it, it can be scary, of course, but ultimately it's information that can help you, help you live a better life. So that is certainly, it's certainly how it worked out for me. Well, that's awesome because I mean, like, I think a lot of people can, don't kind of separate the whole uh, emotional and physical aspects that like your, you know, that trauma can have. And I'm always on here talking about the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is just such oh, an amazing book. Yes. And it like, I can only imagine that once you found that kind of connection that you're like, oh my God, this is not just like happening to pe- people with PTSD or, yeah. you know, other things that it can really have a, a, a big effect on you. So I'm, do you ever find yourself like having that moment of losing your voice again? Or is it, do you feel like it's, it's in the rear um, view ma- window? It's in the rear view, but there, there's, I think it, it's, I always prided myself on the fact that if I was feeling all this turmoil inside, no one could see it on my face or it, or in my being. And I, that was really a point of pride for me. And it ultimately hurts me in the end. Well, do you think that was instilled by your parents or is that just you, a you thing? Like we're That's growing up? Thing. Oh, it's a you thing. Okay. It's a me thing. You know, it's, it's, I think based in a fear of, uh, being found lacking, you know, I'm going to tell you, here's me, here's all of me. And they're like, mm, thumbs down, you know? So I, <laughs> I'm just like, Oh, okay. So everything's cool. Everything's fine. I used to do this thing in rehearsals 
um, oh, which I hate, I hate, 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 but I would just, once you, I would audition, great, get the gig, great. And then on the first day of rehearsal, somehow I would feel I would be backing up and make myself smaller and more timid. And I was because I'm like, oh my God, now here, I'm here, I'm in the room and blah, blah, here I go. And I would force myself to make a glaring error. Something that would be draw like the tension, like so wrong, so very wrong in the room. And it would free me up to do my work. Because then I feel like, well, it can't be worse than that. I can't suck more than that. So from here, everything else is going to be great. And now I can get there without having to do that horrible work in the beginning. Yeah. But that was something that I did because I recognized that I needed to push past that moment. I needed to push past it. And, and that's it's still a work in progress. It's something I'm still working on. It so. takes a lot of discipline as singers, um, you know, as even actors, singers, whatever. But you have to, I mean, if you're in a show, if you're doing eight shows a week or whatever it is, or two shows a day, you have to sort of live like a, a nun or a monk. You cannot yeah. be out partying. You cannot be... Um, you know, enjoying libations as you normally would because you got to, nope. you got to sing the next day for the people. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that, um, you know, the, can you talk a little bit about the, the discipline um, uh, for, you know, being an actor and being a singer, like what it takes sure. to actually do that on a regular basis? Yeah, absolutely. As, as an actor and a singer, you do have to be mindful about, how you live your life. I mean, but drinking your water, about getting enough rest. It does take a little bit of a toll on your social life because you can't be out there partying it up until three or four o'clock in the morning and turn around and do a show. Maybe when you were younger. I mean, I'm not 25 anymore. I can't do, I cannot do that anymore. I don't even know if I could do it then. I well, think, I feel like although, you guys have like a very, you know, it's probably why you end up sounding and looking so good. Is like, it's like, it's almost... It's so different from that kind of musician, like band member life. Right. Because there's just, I, you know, I own a restaurant. We have a lot of live, live music. Not going to name any names in particular, but, you know, see a lot of musicians come and go and, and they're not cutting themselves off from any libations. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, it's kind of, it seems like a little bit more of a, you know, that upper level in order to kind of, do you feel like you have to have to do that just to stay competitive with everybody else? Oh my God. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to do that because whatever gig you're working on is not going to be your last gig. You want to get out there and do something else and spread your wings a little bit more. And you have to be ready to do that. And so that means taking good care of yourself. Um, on all on every level so that you're able to participate and be marketable and be an option for someone in a show. Yeah. What Regina, what was the um little we'll take a little shift here. What was the funniest moment backstage and what was the coolest job you ever you were ever a part of? <laughs> Ooh <laughs> <laughs> I am totally remembering it was on stage, um, the funniest thing. And it happened on, it happened on stage where I was singing river deep mountain high. I had, I was on a platform that's maybe by six feet and I'm singing my song and getting my shimmies in. I have my wig on is cute. And I did a little, ah, ah, little layout and my wig came right off my head. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was the finale of the show. Wig came off. I'm wearing this sequin dress. I'm like, oh God, my wig's still shimmying. Okay, where's my wig? Oh God, where is it? And so I said, well, I'm going to just do a little shimmy in a circle. 
to figure, see where I can, if I can find my wig and I can grab it and I can put it back on my head. So I do a little shimmy in a circle. That's when the audience saw my wig attached to the back of my sequin dress where it got hung up. Oh my god! So they saw my wig before I knew where my wig was. So I turned back around, still like, where's my wig? And then one of my friends came back and cast and snatched it off the back of my dress and gave it to me to put back on. <laughs> and when I put it back on, I was like, ta-da! And the audience totally fell out laughing. They was, it was, oh my God. Well, you know, they're not always looking for the perf- the perfect performance. Sometimes those moments can can yeah. make it even more entertaining. I mean, I... Oh, man. It, I I have kind of like, as a side note, a little uh, interestingly same. So we, we talked earlier about how we're both fallers. We always fall all the yes. time and just clumsy. I was actually in the um, Wizard of Oz uh, when I was in, I was probably nine or ten, and I was the witch, the, the, the evil witch, and uh-huh. I had to do this thing where I ran down the middle of the aisle cackling and then, like, jump on stage and, and then start giving, like, my monologue or whatever. Well, I was wearing tights, and I slipped. And I did, like, a full split. And I have never <laughs> done a full split before. So I felt my muscles rip in half. And then I just, but at that same time, I'm like, everybody's watching me. So I just put my arms up and was like, ta-da! <laughs> And then oh climbed goodness. up and got up there and was just cringing the whole time. Like, oh, this is going to hurt later. But it, yeah. it, I feel like people, they knew. I didn't play it off that well, so they knew it was not on purpose. But they, everybody got a big kick out of it. So, you know, it, you got to get your laughs and your kicks any way yeah, you can. You, do, man. you got to yeah. own it. That's what That was that, that thing. I mean, on the flip side of that, it taught me, let's just own it, you know. This is happening. This is what happened. And then you can move past it and laugh about it because, come on. Yeah. We're singing and dancing here. Exactly. <laughs> this is all fun and games. Well, unless, yeah. you know, except for you can't enjoy your life for eight days straight while you are doing it. But it was was there a specific person that you've always wanted to meet or work with uh, that you got to check off the list? You know, and I got to do this in my very first equity job, which was um, George Wolfe which is a storied, legendary, like iconic director and playwright and, you know, was the um, principal at the uh, the public theater in New York, was my very first job. And I was so, so thrilled to work with him. Uh, I remember my final callbacks, the dance callback, and I was doing something, but they split our roof group up into two groups of the singers who move and the, the dancers who sing. And... This particular movement is like, I, I can dance. Not, I'm not a Fosse dancer by any stretch. I don't have that kind of training, but I could hold my own. And that particular style of dancing really suited my body really well. So I was doing the choreography and the choreographer said, hey, do you want to go join the dancers over there? I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I like my slot. Uh, yeah, I like being the one over here where they're like, ooh. Over there, I'd be like, they're like, we can't oh, see you God. anymore. You become invisible. So, yeah. <laughs> they, so um, but I remember at the final, the final number, George was watching everything. And I did my, I think there was a group of four. And he said it too loudly. I wasn't supposed to hear it. So I finished. I did a double pirouette. I landed at the end. He said, she's good. And I was like, <gasps> what a moment. He said I was good. And then he was, and he caught himself because he said, oh, it was too loud. But I was like, too late. Yeah, it's too late. I heard it. (laughs) It's too late. I'm a star. (laughs) So that was really thrilling to me. 
that was I've never forgotten. George Wolf for for everyone listening um, is uh, he was famous for Jelly's Last Jam, which was uh, underappreciated musical with uh, Gregory Hines, and um, he was in the Devil Wells Prada as well. He yes. Oh, he too. was. Yes. Yeah, he was around the table. Oh yeah, he was. That which character? He was around the, t- he was in he the, was around the, the table. The boardroom. Down the ideas for their spring. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he won a um, yeah. he won a Tony Award in '93 for directing Angels in America. Okay. Yeah. So right. yeah. he's he's oh, sounds yeah. like it. He's amazing. I didn't know you worked with him. That's so cool. Yeah, that was my first professional job. That's how I joined the union. That's wow. amazing. Well, so I know we've kind of talked about all the the fun stuff, um, other than you know what you kind of have to put yourself through for all of this. But do you kind of ever feel like or remember a time that a director or a choreographer or even a fellow actor made you feel like you didn't belong? And and where where you were and and did it have any lasting effects on you? Yeah, there was. I actually did a, a production. Actually, I did a Little Shop of Horrors, and I love that show. Oh, I and love I, that show. It, mm-hmm. oh, so good. Little Shop. Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, yes. I did it. The first time I did it, our musical director was this white man who was. I, I found out later, kind of emasculated at home. And he tended to find a punching bag in every show. And he seemed to focus on... Was focus it Will Smith? On... I'm kidding. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Only appropriate right now. Whenever this airs, you would be like, what again was that? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please continue. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's our laugh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, they were particularly people of color, and he, I was the one. So I, he gave me, I was still really developing my voice at that time, so I, I, I could sing, but I had a, like, more of a limited range, and he gave me the highest line in the show. And I felt so nervous about it every time I came in, and I had to sing, and I felt like they, and he's like, Regina, I can't hear you. I can't, are you saying it? Are you even doing this right? I can't, Regina, are you, gonna, are you ever going to get this? Every day, every rehearsal. And I was, I, I lost so much weight because I was so panicked and freaked out every time I came into being singled out and being made to feel like I wasn't good enough and that I was never going to be good enough and I was letting everybody down and the show was going to suck because of me. And I got through it and I did it. Okay, fast forward like two years and there's another production that they, the same company is doing and he is involved as a musical director. Uh-oh. And I was doing it as a favor to everyone. It was one of the show, 1940s Radio Hour. I don't know if you guys know it. It's I, I'm like, why is the show even out there still? Because literally in the notes in front of the book, they have a black character in it. And it, in the notes, it says, if you can't cast this character, then just cut her lines and reassign the songs and voila, you still you have a great play. And I was like, well, why is what? Why are you even here? Why is this part? What were you trying to do? It's like, okay, just insert or exclude, include or, or include or exclude this black character. So already I came in I w- and I did it as a favor. It's nothing that I was burning to do, but I did it as a favor to the director because I couldn't find a, a black woman to play her and, and went in to do it and had a bad taste in my mouth from that. But then when I got in there, this guy was still there. I was not the punching bag this time. It was somebody else. And I thought, why are you, why am I here? I can't do this. I'm going to do this. So I called, I think I was two weeks into their six week rehearsal. And I called and said, I can't participate in this anymore. I can't do Good this. for you. And they said, um, 
Yeah, the, I spoke to the director first and the choreographer called me and then the musical director, aha, uh-huh, called me last of all. And when he called me, he's like, you know, well, Regina, I, I understand you're, you're leaving our production. I, I hope it's not anything that I did. I said, um, as a matter of fact, it is what you've done. Let me bring to your bring to mind where I was. And I'd grown a lot as a person. I got more confidence at that point, you know, and, and I... I said, this is my experience with you when I did a little shop of horrors, and now you've got somebody else that you're messing with. I can't be a part of this. Well, just kind of the, what you were saying, though, is it kind of reminds me of the exact same thing that happened in Little Shop of Horrors. It's like, why would you hire somebody to just basically torture them the whole time mm-hmm. and nitpick? It's like, yeah. what was the point of that? You know, if you don't oh. think that you're doing the, a good job at that part, like, don't harass that person. Well, and that's the, that's the whole point. Like, hurt people, hurt people. He is clearly, it was about him. It's not about Regina. It oh, was about what something he was going through, right? But it's like, you know, and why do they always have to do it in front of an audience? Why I know. Narcissism. I mean. Boom. It is yeah. narcissism um, for sure. You, you touched on the, the part about the 1940s radio hour. And um, I did that show. And we talked about that very thing that was, it's literally mm. written in bold on the front yeah. of the script um, still to this day. So That's so crazy to me. Theater International, like, get your shit together, please. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, but Alexa, like, get she's music she's theater. <laughs> Next page is sponsored by My Restaurant, Bay Street Beer Garden. We're located in what was once an old train depot in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Pretty cool, huh? Our bar and restaurant has beautiful high ceilings, communal tables, and German-influenced high-end bar fare. So it's as close as you can get to an authentic beer hall in the South. At our Bavarian-inspired and Southern-made restaurant, we're all about community, festivities, and uniting the old with the new. So go check out our website for updates on all the things, including live music, brunch parties, vendor markets, and all of our other upcoming events. We can't wait to see y'all. Next page is sponsored by Patrick Properties Hospitality Group. It's no secret that Charleston is one of the top wedding destinations in the world. And I'm thrilled to say Patrick Properties is the premier wedding and event company in the area. Since 1997, PPHG has unveiled five of Charleston's grandest properties and estates, faithfully restored and transformed into exquisite venues for special events. At Patrick Properties, we believe that moments matter, and our experienced team is committed to making each one extraordinary with unrivaled service and professional expertise. So if you're looking for a classy venue for your next big event, check out Patrick Properties Hospitality Group on their website or social media. Regina, uh, being a black performer yourself, in what ways, other than the 1940s radio hour, have you experienced racism in uh, in and out of the business? Um, was there a particular experience that was uh, more frightening than any of the others? Um, I would love for you to share that with uh, with our listeners. If you feel yeah, I did a job in uh, Nashville. And it was the first time I worked at Opryland USA and I had never, I'm a California girl. And it's like, you know, never, I really spent any time living in the South. And, but I went out there and did it. And at that time, uh, black dancers and white dancers could not be partners. This couldn't, they, they just, that was a policy at the park. What year was this? 87. 88. 88. Still seems way too late. Yeah, it was a while ago, but it was still, that was my like my very first paid job when I was like just barely getting in. And um, yeah, you couldn't do it. 
couldn't do it. They had black female, male female duo and a, a, their white counterpart. And if one of them was out, they just cut the number, the dancers all together. They would not partner them at all. Just not at all. And I remember it, our musical director was a white gay guy. He loved him so much and uh, we were walking in the park together one day we were holding hands we're walking blah blah and heard this old white man say look at that black and white trash oh my god I was like um what the it was crazy to me it was absolutely insane I mean I had I was a little bit you know, when I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Nashville. I've never spent any real time in the South. My dad is from Alabama. Oh, my God, the stories that he has. And, um, you know, he's like, keep your wits about you. You know, mm -hmm. keep your wits about you when you're out there. Don't put yourself in any situations where you could potentially, you know, be outnumbered or hurt. Just be smart about where you go and who you're with. And that was the – there was another time I think we, we talked um... – about it, uh, you were your your car broke down. You were on a job. Oh my God! Yes, this. <laughs> thank God it was a happy ending. But I was going to a goodbye party in Nashville, and I was driving. My friend, I had a stick shift car, which I still suck at driving to this day. But he was just learning. I was just learning how to drive it. He was leaving town on another job and he's leaving his car there and his family member's going to pick it up. So it was at my disposal for a couple of weeks. So I was using his car to get to this party, which was about uh, 10 miles away. And on the highway 40, which was this big, huge highway thoroughfare trucks. No, not a whole lot of lighting. Okay. So I'm in the car. I get there. I get to the club. No one is there. So I'm like, what the hell? Where's everybody? Call. Oh, sorry, we didn't call you. We changed locations. Fine. I get back in the car. As I'm driving back, it just cuts out on me. It just stops on the side of the road. And I was like, oh my God. And I'm sitting there. I, I Ultimately, I guess I flooded the car because I'm trying to start, trying to start, and nothing's happening. And the lucky part is that I was maybe a mile and a half away from my exit. And I thought, well, I, I cannot be in this car all night. And I, these trucks were whizzing by and you could feel the, the car shift within the wake of the trucks. And it's like, okay, well, you're going to get out. And I had on the, I had um, this black suit on with my black heels and I'm black and it's a dark night. And I'm like, oh, oh I need a vest. <laughs> so I took my, I took, I was just still in my heels running. I had my belt wrapped around my hand the way they teach women to wrap your keys in one hand and your belt in the other. So you can use that as a weapon if you need to. And I start running off the highway and the trucks are passing by and I'm freaked out and I'm just trying to get to my exit. So I'm about a quarter of a mile maybe away. And so I'm close enough to be like, okay, I can calm down and I can slow to my walk and I can just, you know, make my way out the highway. So uh, as I'm walking, this, the cab part of a trailer truck pulls over in front of me and in the back window is a Confederate flag. On the antenna, a Confederate flag is waving and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. So he's, the guy pulls over in front of me. And so, um, and, and I couldn't even walk around him. There wasn't a whole lot of room. So anyway, I got up and he gets out of the car and it's this white man, greasy brown hair, trucker cap on with, yes, another Confederate flag. Oh, oh my gosh. How many do cap. you need? Uh, seriously. We so get the picture. He, yeah. We got it. So he comes around. He's like, hey, hey, what's the problem? And I said, oh, I, you know, my car it broke down a while back, but I'm good. As I'm right off the highway. I'm, I'm right here. I'm going to walk. He said, well, you know, why don't you come and get in the car? I'll, I'll give you a ride off the highway. 
I said, no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm good. I'm all, this is my exit. I'm, I'm fine. He said, listen, get in the car. You, you'll be on your side. I'll be on my side. And, you know, I'm going to get you off the highway. I'm going to drop you off. And that's it. For whatever reason, I was like, okay. So I got in the car and the, the, the cab with him. And he, and he said, you know, I heard about you about 10 miles back. All these truckers that were passing by me were talking about, there's this black girl right on the highway. And blah, blah. So he said, I said, if I get up to you and you're still there, I'm going to pull over and get you off the highway. It's my Christian duty to do that. And he literally did just that. He got me off the highway. He dropped me off in front of the gas station that was across from my apartment building and went on his way. Now, that <laughs> was a scary moment. It ended up just fine, which sometimes I look to in moments where I feel like, oh God, what's happening in America? To be like, this, these moments are happening. No way am I the only person that something like this has happened to for all the things that happen on the other side of that you know, that are the, that are completely opposite to that. Um, and I look at that for, that there is good in people. There's good in all of us, you know, somewhere, no matter what, you know, and I don't know what the, the rest of his life was like. I don't know what choices he's made. I know he loves his Confederate flag, yes. but he also gave me a ride off the freeway. The so, South will rise again, but hey now. this time I got to yeah. do my Christian duties. So, yeah. You know, maybe well, that kind of like leads me into like you mentioned kind of like the state of our country. Like what what do you feel like now is kind of your biggest fear when it comes to the current state of our country? You know, I, I think. And in, in with what happened at the Academy Awards, I kind of brought it in. And I think as not that I can speak for every black person, but I know as a community, what it also Meant to us is like, oh God, you know, we're finally, you feel like we're finally getting some traction as a group of people and that this happens. And it was always that thing where you, you hear something terrible happens on the news. You're like, please don't let him be black. 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 Because you feel like we're, we've always been painted with the same brush. And, and it's still happening in this country. Just recently, like a couple of days ago in South Dakota, there was a woman in a hotel that, that, banned Native Americans from their business. No more Native Americans can come to our place of business. We're not going to rent. It was a hotel. We're not going to rent rooms to you. Uh, but there was an altercation in her hotel that involved a Native American. And she literally put a Facebook post out saying, no more Native Americans in this, my hotel or my bar. And they had a couple people go out to try and rent a room. Nope. So now it's a national conversation Finally, I mean, it's getting a little traction now. Finally, there there was a groups of the the, the uh, Native Americans that went there and protested and all of that. So the fact that that is still a part of who we where we are in this country is what always gives me pause. I feel like um, it was certainly unfortunate. There's a lot of trauma there, on um, both sides with Will Smith and Chris Rock. Uh, it's interesting to see just how quickly people want to absolutely nail him to the cross, you know, and just to not, and we're, people make mistakes. People make horrible mistakes. And there's got to be some grace where you can, certainly it was wrong, should not have happened. Absolutely not. However, everyone's human. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone, and we have to give each other grace. I think where we are right now in this country where you know, I've had white friends that talk to me about I'm being afraid to say the wrong thing or I'm going to make a mistake or I'm going to offend you. I'm like, it's probably going to happen. 
But this is where you, we extend grace because we're learning. We've got to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And that seems to be something that as a country we're very unwilling to do. And you get why the, with the history that we have. It's like giving because sometimes it feels like giving someone the benefit of the doubt is a setup for yourself. You know, you're going to be abused in some way or going to be let down in some way. But I don't think there's any other way to go about it. Yeah. Do yeah. you do you feel like kind of as a country we're kind of losing that ability to, to give clemency and forgiveness to people during you know after that it's almost like it seems like the pendulum has swung oh my god so far that you know obviously yeah. we need to to hold people accountable that are doing horrendous things um consistently i you know mm -hmm. rv wines yeah for one but you know i, I do you feel like that we're, we're kind of you know that there's the this fear that you're going to always do something wrong and you can never come back from it well yes cancel absolutely culture, yeah. Yeah. I, I do. And it, it's, it's ugly stuff. You know, you feel like, oh, I got to forgive this person for this horrendous, ugly thing that they did. I get that. It's hard. That's something I think we should work for. Um, I feel like the pendulum has been like, I love that you use that because it's, uh, it's been so far fixed in one point. That in such an extreme point for so long, for the history of this country, it's been stuck in one position. So now that it's swinging, it's going to have to, it's not going to settle in the middle in any kind of a balanced way until it swings all the way to the other side. And that's where we're living. That's where we're living is when it's way in this other extreme. And so all of this stuff is coming up that has to be dealt with that is far from pretty um, and that we have to really examine and figure out and lead try and lead with some grace even though when it's really difficult and it seems that that's that shouldn't be the way to go yeah, i think sure. there's so many layers there culturally too with hair and black women and their hair uh that chris rock did that documentary oh, called love good that hair documentary so yeah and i was like you don't uh, that's why i questioned that joke it's yeah. like why you would make that joke when you very intimately know can, what can you, that means you, and you, what that um, wait that hair on that? Is. Yeah, in this, you know, and again, in this country, when you're made to feel like you are not, you're less than because you're not white, you want to be white adjacent. And for a lot of times, if you, of course, if you're lighter skinned, if your hair has a straighter texture, then you're more white adjacent and you're not as discriminated against. You're not, maybe you're not the black person that's followed around in the, in the store because you look like you might be a little bit white. And, you know, we used to joke about that coming up where, you know, in commercials, if there was one black person in a commercial of 10 white people, it was a black commercial, you know, and, and so, and you would, you know, you would see that all the time. And, and I would see, I remember on black programming when I was growing up, those were the only times you would see black people in commercials if it was black programming that you would book at. And, and I feel like it's so refreshing now that there you see so many people of color, different sizes and shapes and gender identities. And all. it's just so beautiful now to actually see that existing in the world as a real thing that nobody's making a, you know, a special comment upon. So it's just kind of, it's just happening. Next page is sponsored by Rogers, Patrick, Westbrook, and Brickman Law Firm, located in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. RPWB attorneys are experienced, respected, and tenacious. The common thread of their work is that they help those who have been wronged. They often lead class action lawsuits and multi-district litigations against large corporations. So they're the ones fighting the big guy. And people tend to notice. Their attorneys, including my dad and future guests, are highly regarded by both peers and adversaries. 
and were voted best law firm in 2021 in U.S. News and World Report. Their proudest moments are when they help ordinary, hardworking Americans who have been harmed through no fault of their own. So if you need attorneys with experience, innovation, and determination, give RPWB Law Firm a call or visit their website at rpwb.com. There's kind of this political theory that when president is elected, there's always kind of a pendulum swing back towards, you know, policies the other way as kind of a reactionary thing. Do you, do you feel like you see a lot of that culturally since since we've had kind of Obama was in a you know was the, our president for eight years? Seemed like we were getting really going full speed ahead with uh, gay rights and marriage and mm-hmm. and and now you know it just I feel like all you hear about is like what you mentioned the the people that are banning um, Native Americans from their place of work or, or the don't say gay. I mean, all these kind mm-hmm. of things. Do you, do you see a lot of that happening in, in the business that you're in? Mm. Um, That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> it is Laura. It was a very I good, try sometimes. Very good question. It's kind it's it, it, the where I think where it is right now is people are trying to make peace with the fact that non-white people are now more actively a part of the conversation and, and being more in the room and, and more a, a part of, um, of the industry in ways that they haven't been before all of this came up before. I mean, this was such a catalyst with George Floyd to so many things uh, being discussed and real change, like real visible change that happens quickly. And it's not kick the cans, not kick down the road for years and we're going to get there, you know, and all of that. Um, I, I remember hearing it wasn't said to me, but it was said to a friend of mine that was at an audition, a commercial audition, that there was a white person that told her that it's a good time to be black now. Oh. <laughs> she was, was like... She was a, yeah. a black lady that said this? Or yeah. a white no, woman? No, a white oh, woman. Oh, that is hmm, bad taste. Yeah, the whole thing about... What was, you know, that... that, that um, saying that to privileged people, equality feels like oppression... And it's that where, where, you know, she sat there and you kind of sometimes don't even know how to respond to that because you're just like, uh, it reminds me of, I would have friends that would tell me uh, they went someplace and they were really brave because they were the, I was the only white person there. And I was like, fucking who? Yeah. Like I was, (laughs) well, it was supposed to be like, Aren't you proud of me? Aren't you happy for me for being so brave? Look at how open-minded I am. Look at how willing I am to get out there into the world and put myself in a place where there aren't a lot of me around. And it was all like this. They were looking for congratulations for me for doing that. And I'm just Absolutely being... ridiculous. Because, I mean, it's like, a, ha, read the room. How do you not... How many times have... And, have I, you know, most of my life, I have been in that. Where I'd be sitting there, I'm like, I'm probably the only black person around for miles yeah. where I am right now. You know, and um, yeah, so I think the world is opening. I feel like the the correct emotion will come after the actions. Now people are forced to to do these actions and to put their money where their mouth is. Maybe they don't always believe in it. Maybe they feel like oh, I'm, I'm only doing this because I have to. I'll take that. 
Yeah. Is it, is it sincere? That's the question. Yeah. That's the question. It's like, and, but I have to just say, I really don't care about the sincerity at this point. If there's some equity, if there is some more representation, uh, you can get on board with the actual feelings later because let's get on with, and I feel like a lot of times that that happens after, after you push for change, then people may, may resent it. And that, and then they'll get on board later. I don't feel like the, the emotions are the first thing to change for, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, certainly in the industry, because you don't want to seem like, oh, I'm not on the right side. Oh, I'm going to be canceled. Oh, I better get some black people in this commercial. I better get some, you know, some Asian people. I better, you know, do something. That's the thing. That's what I wanted to ask you about, because that, yeah, I mean, some of that feels like, you know, it used to be the token, right? Mm -hmm. There was one or two black people in a show. There was one or two black people in a movie. And now mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it, it, sometimes it's die. <laughs> I know. <laughs> huh? Horror movies. You know, you're the first to die. Exactly. It's like they're taking and they're taking notes from the 1940s radio hour. And they're just like, fucking show. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely kind of want to know a little bit how, like, you know, you just touched on the fact that the change, you don't really care how it happens. And I, and as a woman, I, I feel the same way that like, mm. if it took just totally insincere white men that are all trying to control our bodies to mm -hmm. like, just realize that they have no business there and like still be yeah. bitter and resentful about it for however long, I don't care as long as they don't just care. step out, like, because exactly. stay in your lane. That's right. Um, so I, I thousand percent like can understand why, you know, the means aren't always going to be the best, but I, mm. I do kind of feel like w once you obviously watched as kind of the protests and riots or, you know, we'll say mostly protests were going on with black lives matter. What was your kind of reaction during that time with, with all of those, um, protests. Did you feel a little bit resentful when some of them started, you know, rioting or burning things or were you kind of thinking like what, by whatever means necessary? You know, I, kind of both, kind of, kind of both because I, I think, and if we knew with any real certainty who was burning and who was looting, and then I think I would have a, a, a more um, pointed answer because we, you just don't know. There's just so much mess out there and people that have different agendas to try and discredit the, uh, the movement and the statement and the protest. You just, it's, it's impossible to really know. So what I go with is what I feel as a black person, what I have felt as a black person in this country and which is to believe was out there. And, and because I, I remember I grew up um, in LA proper lots of uh, black people around. And then we moved to the suburbs when I was in high school and all white. I think in my high school, there were 3000 students. There were 25 black kids of which my sisters and I were three. So I remember walking to school on the very first day and there was a couple that saw us. They were all on their front porch and they had sprinklers that would cover the sidewalk on the side. They turned their sprinklers on as we were about to walk in front of their house. So we wouldn't walk in front of their house. We walked around. I got called the N-word at school by a kid. And um, this was in L.A.? Oh, yeah. Wow. This is in Southern California. I got 
and uh, when we and there was a kid, there was another black guy who was, and he was just this like scrawny little white kid. He's probably in eighth grade or so, and he said, and this other black kid came up to him and like was letting you know was coming for him and letting. Why are you doing? You can't call that. You can't use it. He said, Well, my grandpa told me, and he seemed genuinely confused that this was a problem. But he was like, Oh, was that bad? He just, Well, my yeah. grandpa, call, this is my grandpa calls you guys, so, you know. Is that a, I don't understand why this is a problem. Then come to find out the people on our block had gotten together when they found that a black family was moving in. They all got together like, what are we going to do? There's a black family coming in. There's going to be like 40s on the front lawn and old rusty cars. And it's going to be our neighborhood. Yikes. And, um, and then we moved in, lived our lives and did our things. In about four or five months, they're like, hey, do you guys babysit? Would you babysit my kids? All the, and this is what I mean. It's like they were forced to. They, they, they had no choice. But once they began to know us and see who we were, now they're like, can you babysit my kids? To me, that's what America is. You, have, you're, you operate on these preconceived notions that aren't your personal experience, but you run with it like it is. And then you're like, oh, because they absolutely turned all the way around and became really good friends after that. You know, but it, it, but it's also chilling for me to think like these are the same people that are like, come, let's eat that, that we're having meetings about us coming and kind of wanted us just to be okay about it, not talk about it. Yeah, we had, we yeah. had actually, do you remember we spoke during the riots, you and I did? Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to share with everybody, I was um, a very, uh, you, were, you were very gracious, but I, I had a moment where I didn't realize I don't know how I couldn't realize, but as a, a, a white man, I really, truly didn't know how bad it was in this. Because I, I, I have, my friends are all different colors, all different sexualities, all different whatever. And it just never occurred to me that their experience could not be like mine. I know that's really ignorant, but I know that there are a lot of people who are afraid to say what I'm about to say. But I think that it's a teachable moment. It was a teachable moment for me. You know, I'm sitting here crying to Regina about, I didn't know. I didn't know it was so hard for you. I didn't know. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I feel like I've been, and you were so wonderful about it. But now that I've, I've grown since that moment, it's like, how could you not know, Todd? Like it, it's, it's, it's plain as day in front of you. Every well, you day, know, I, every I, day. I have kind of a, an interesting, I think, perspective that just because Todd and I grew up in, in Charleston, and this is kind of an interesting conversation I've had with friends that have moved out uh, of here and gone to uh, Oregon and California, and, and, and my own, like, my, I moved to California, and, and thinking in your mind, you're like, well, they're, they're going to be, like, the most open-minded people in the world, and then you get there, and it's almost like I, I feel like some of it, and, and you te- definitely tell me what your your kind of thoughts are on this. But it, I've kind of found that that in the South, as much as it we get a bad rap for uh, you know the Confederate flags and all of that, and I definitely think that there's still a lot of undercurrent there. That that there's almost a more exposure to to black people in your everyday life. So you you make friends, and then that gets people to be like, oh well, you know, I don't. Now that I know these people, I don't feel that way anymore. Like you said, it's kind of like um, it forces you to kind of reckon with that. But if I kind of feel like people in in Oregon and, and other areas, like sometimes you go places and you don't see one black person anywhere, and and it almost seems like these more ignorant kind of comments 
come from those areas, surprisingly, because, but maybe not so surprisingly, because they haven't ever had to actually face what's going on. I mean, do y'all see a big difference, like especially uh, Todd and in your, your experience of coming to the South when you have of how people deal with those race relations on, on different coasts? Yeah, I think um, what I found when I was in the South in those particularly those kinds of heightened experiences I've had where there were racial components to it is that there is an expectation is the kind of this is how it is and there's nothing weird about it that it wasn't um how can i say this like uh there was a time uh this is funny i'm just kind of maybe we'll circle back to black canvas to the film i did but i remember going out in Nashville, going out clubbing with my friends and having a good time. Everything's beautiful. We're dancing. And one of my guy friends ends up going to the bathroom. And when he comes back, he's like, Regina, these guys are talking about you in the bathroom. And I said, what do you mean? They're talking about me in the bathroom. They're wondering how much you cost. It was assumed that I was a hooker. It was assumed that I was a hooker. That was not even the last time that that happened to me. And that's part of what that film is about. And it was the way it was discussed is like, you can't be anything else. Of course, that's what you are. It's not even a question that you could just be a person that's out having a good time. This is who you are because it's who I think you are. So that's all there is. So in that kind of matter of fact um, approach to who I was based on my skin color and what I was, I was like, okay. And then, um, and here, I'm more surprised, really, when I encounter it in any way in California, because it is more, oh, more open-minded. There's more. It's a more liberal. It's not those those um, that history is not steeped mm-hmm. in the you know here on the West Coast, but it's still here. You know, I've had aggression, microaggressions, in full where there was oh god, there's so many, and but I'm trying to think of, let's see, the one that comes to mind was in a grocery store and I was, it was late at night, the grocery store was closing in maybe 20 minutes and I had a few items, so didn't need a big basket, a big cart. So there was, but there was a trolley that was in the way of when I was coming to pay for my goods. So I just came around the trolley, put my stuff on the conveyor belt and the, the cashier was ringing me out and there was a white woman that came behind me and she looked hairy, like she's terrible, <laughs> clearly had a bad day, but she's like, you people, you should put things away when you're finished with them. What do you think about all the rest of us? We ca- I can't get around your car. I know you need to move this cart. You're finished with the cart. Move the cart. And it was, oh, I'll turn to talk. And then a, what, the woman that was checking me out was white. She said, listen, and she just jumped in. I was about to say, <laughs> I would have gone like, to bat for you. I'd be like, yeah. oh, oh, first totally of all, why are you I... so angry? Okay. Mm-hmm. This is... She said, she said, listen, you might need to gather your information before you accuse someone. This cart was here when she got here. Yeah. So you owe her an apology. Did well, I get one? No. no. She just kind of looked around like, I'm going to wait for this to be over and then I'm going to carry on. You know. Do you, I, I really want to ask this question, but I don't know if it's appropriate, but I'm just going to ask it. Ask it. Yeah, we okay. can always edit it out. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, do you think, to what I said before, I did feel blind, but I think that that, do you think white privilege makes white people blind? Oh, absolutely. Like just oh. not aware. Because you, you, now that it's, it's, like, it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
But when you don't see it before, it's like, how did you not see this? It's that red pill, blue pill <laughs> situation. Yeah, because when the world is is built for you and the legislation supports what you believe about yourself to be true, that's your world. It's not challenged in any way on any level. You see yourself everywhere. You know, all the wording. I would think about wordings in magazines when I was growing up when I was a teenager. Boy, was my face red. Everything was written for a white girl that I would read. And there weren't many. I think Essence was out, but it was pretty new. And and I remember being a child, being a kid, and someone gave me a black doll. I was ashamed to carry that doll. It felt like my doll is ugly because she's black. Oh my goodness. This is what I learned from America at growing up as a kid, that you're an other you're, and your other is not great. So you're conditioned from, from a very oh, man. young age. Like you oh, just, yeah. this is just the way it is. And maybe it's our white fragility, our ego. And, you know, we choose to deny that, that we are part of the problem. Yeah. I think that's like a huge issue is just that you're, you can be like, well, this is going on it's crazy. And I'm so not racist and I'm not this and that. It's like, you still have to own the po- fact that. That, like, as Regina said, that this, this country is built for white people. So if you're not making, like, striving to make changes in that way and support the legislation that to protect, uh, you know, civil rights for everybody, then, then like, you're basically not, you're part of the problem, too. Right. It's, so, it's not enough just to not be racist. You have to be anti-racism. Anti-racist, right. yeah. And I, what did you say earlier, Regina, was you said that people see equality as... Oh, yes. Uh, for the privileged, equality feels like oppression. Yes. And I think that is very... Like, I just have goosebumps yeah, everywhere. Because same. I think that applies not just with um, race relations. I think it applies with LGBTQ. I think it applies mm-hmm. with women's rights. Like, it's as if anything that isn't catered to a straight white man... Mm-hmm. then we're just being snowflakes and trying to appease these other groups. And, and I, I, what, how do you think that we can possibly get people to see that is not, we're not trying to take away your rights as a white man. We're just mm-hmm. trying to get rights as a white female or as a black person, whether male or female or gay. Like it, that's yeah. a really I, tall order. I don't know. I have this theory that's, just mine and I, I feel like we know on on maybe a like a subcellular level that you know when things have been so skewed for so long and it's become so comfortable to live in that very skewed place that the time that it takes it's, it's kicking and screaming to get to the other side. It's not going to be a fun ride for anyone. And especially the people that have benefited from living in that skewed place to where it just feels normal. So it just, it's, it's going to be painful. It is going to be painful. It's going to be unpleasant to do that. But I feel like that doesn't have to, you don't have to land there. It doesn't have to be, I think there'll be, there could be a moment and a period where it's painful, but you can, you'll stay there as long as you choose to ignore the truth and ignore where we really need to go. You can write your own sentence as far as it goes to that, because I think generally the heart of America is to do the right thing. Is it the first choice we make a lot of times? No, it's going to be tougher for some people. What was it? LB Johnson said something about if you teach a lowest socioeconomic 
level white man that he's better than the highest black man, you can get him to do anything. You can take, put a hand in his pocket and steal from him and he'll never know. And I think that thinking that I am better is it, um, not only white and black, but also within the black community. I, I remember the colorist thing, and you guys know about that, the colorism. In my grade school, I went, I won jelly beans. I remember you were guess the jelly beans oh, at yeah. a school festival, oh, yeah. right? And I won the guess the jelly beans. There was a $5 bill inside. And I was like, yay, I think I was in fourth grade. Congratulations. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. That still, is not still an beating. easy task. No, I totally was only three jelly beans away, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Oh my wow. You might as well. <laughs> I hope they gave you the biggest prize ever that was not just all jelly beans. It was, Yeah, it was jelly beans with the $5 inside. So, you okay. know, right, I'm yeah. still living out that interest right now. So um, the so I my, my mom got, got it home and mom said, oh, you should divide the jelly beans up and give them to your classmates. I was like, I don't want to give my jelly beans to these people. <laughs> no, I want all the jelly beans. But I ended up, of course, doing what my mom said. And I saw going to my class with my box of, you know, packaged jelly beans for everyone. And this girl that wasn't in my class was this kind of Creole girl, straightish hair, light skin, whole thing. She wanted some of my jelly beans. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I have to give it to you just to have enough for the people in my class. And she said, well, if you give me some jelly beans, I'll tell people you're my cousin. Oh, so that you can be... So I can be associated with a lighter girl. Okay, that's this just, that's just disgusting. This, these are children. These, these, we're, we're kids. We're little Ugh. kids. And this is your thinking because of what you are programmed to think about yourself by white America. You got to be approximate. You got to be like us or else you're really never going to be anything good. Right. There was a program on ABC that was called that was for black children in black schools called I Am Somebody that they fostered as, as a part of this when I was a child. So that you were like, all right, we got to turn. That was their, the, one of the first kind of national efforts to kind of, they recognized that and tried to turn it around like, I am somebody, I am somebody. And you taught, wrote a paper about why I am somebody. Well, what I'm, you know, kind of, this is just making me even more, my, so I have an amazing nanny. She is like the president of the International Nanny Association. So she's basically Mary Poppins. And she makes such a concerted effort to like, get books and things for my kids that are like, you know, just, you know, kind of this new generation of, you know, some kind of people lumping in with critical race theory, but just that on a, on a, a, a child's level of being like, you know, awareness so that there's not this feeling like, oh, we've already fixed it. Like we stop, mm -hmm. we don't have, we're all integrated now, but an actual uh, emphasis on on acceptance and how much we should include and if not include actually raise up and respect how you know the the, the black community and i'm so mm -hmm. grateful that my nanny's done that i hope that that starts just you know happening everywhere I and mean, we just yeah start dropping should books be a thing all over yeah. all over the place but i mean you've given so much insight on this it's, it's amazing and and definitely want leads me to my next kind of question is that you, you mentioned the movie that you're that you made black canvas can you tell us a little bit about that and and what it's yeah. and the people that were involved and and how we can watch it absolutely black canvas is a short that i shot in 2020 and i i love how all of these kind of topics kind of meld together because it was made and conceived by a white australian woman 
who was in the cast of Donna Summer, the musical, with the, the other woman that I play. We're the, the two protagonists, I guess, in the, in the film. And we, we play, I play her an older version of her. And we're playing an artist who's trying to find her way in a world that's dominated by white men and trying to navigate that world where I need to be true to myself. But I also recognize the power structure that I have to work within. How do I remain true to myself while and not compromise on this end, even though I need this end so that my art can survive? And, and it's about representation as well, about where is my art and about being the, the magical Negro. Just, just that one, you know, don't be that special one when there are many of us out there. So it kind of covers all of this. And it was interesting that Kay Tuckerman is the name of the woman who is the filmmaker and she, and who wrote it. And Brilliant. Yeah, and she had a lot of trouble. We talked about it at length about how do I feel? I don't want to be that white savior. Is it coming across like that? She was going back and forth about even completing it because she wanted to avoid that so much. And then we had big conversations about it. And I said, for me, where I'm at is, girl, it is all hands on deck in America. This is what it is. And it's about having a seat at the table. It's about having a voice in the conversation. You're not making this in a vacuum. We're having conversations about it. So this already elevates it from a place where it was before. It is not your take on my experience. We built this together. We were had a we had all the, you know the the input that was necessary so that it's authentic and that it's real and that it can resonate. And I showed it to other black women friends, and they were all like, "Yes, I know that story. I am that woman. I've been in that place. I know what it feels like." My dancer friends, who when people say, you know, it's going to buy a car, oh, you know, what club do you work at? She's like, "I, I dance for share. I dance." For- <laughs> I oh. work for Club Share. Um, <laughs> it's actually a worldwide tour. So Yes. She's like, no, I'm not at the Spearmint Rhino off the freeway. <laughs> I am literally working for artists and I do the Super Bowl and I do all the things. Yeah. So that's where it is. And it's, it's going to be shopped around to some festivals, but I was really proud to be a part of it and to tell that story because I am not the only woman that has that story. That's amazing. Well, speaking of yeah. that, so you have Black Canvas coming out and then you're actually now a writer and you are I writing am. a book i like your response to that what yes i am you're a writer girl um, I'm, a, yeah, I'm a writer you're a, you're a writer um but the um the book as i understand is about um artists famous and not about their journeys to their first broadway debut so yes. I, you did a lot of interviews right uh, who who did you interview and and how's it coming oh my gosh it's coming i'm so excited to be right at the end of it I'm right it was it was this project that just went on and on and life got in the way and work and stuff so it, it's always been a part of my heart and it's always lived in my head this for when I first started working on it, it was like 2013 when I was living in New York it kind of just came about when I was on doing my side hustle as a chef and walking to buy the groceries for a my girl client with many talents my goodness oh I love cooking I really do but I passed by um, the, the Kinky Boots Theater. And I remember just looking up and all the windows on the buildings and they're full of actors and everybody has a story and how they got there. And I thought, how did you get there? Anybody that hasn't gotten there yet, that's the big question. How you get there? What did you do to get there? And as it happens, I had a, a friend who knew Billy Porter. And I, he was my very first interview. 
And I went and sat in the theater between shows and he told me his story. And then I, you know, I was, I sat in the Book of Mormon theater, interviewed those people, I had a friend in that show. So I just went there on a matinee day and sat in the house and people came out and I, and I got their interviews. And then, you know, I've, I've interviewed Marsha Gay Harden and Stephen Root and Chris Sarandon and Joanna Gleason. Um, I'm looking wow. at my list. Just casual. Yeah, um, yeah, just yeah you know, with you, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, Annalie Ashford, uh, uh, Keith Davis, Celia Keenan Bolger, Gavin Creel. Oh, you know, it's lots be of such a great book. Lots of people, and that book. I mean, when it first started, my whole vision was that it's going to be this glossy, sexy coffee table situation with you know their story and a beautiful picture of the actor. But then as I worked on it, these themes kept recurring of resilience and self-worth and self-acceptance and forgiveness and, and you know, just, and the stories are, are so incredible what people went through to get to where they are and from the people that I was still in school and I got my first job like Billy Porter to the people that I've been out there for in a, a decade before I got on Broadway and here's how I survived. And these themes are, they recur they're in all our lives, no matter what your career is what you're whatever what you're doing those those are everywhere and ultimately I think the biggest takeaway is that is to keep repeating that you're enough you're enough you're enough because I was talking with Celia and she said that you know the moment that you really do believe that you're enough that's when you are but when you truly believe it no matter what happens in the room when you go in you you just totally mess up your call you know uh, your audition that you still are enough. You're just not right for this or whatever happened, you know, fell out, but there was a reason for it. And it's so true. Interviewing, um, now that you've been writing and filmmaking and doing all of this, uh, has it changed your perspective as an actor? Yeah. I don't I mean, know why. Other than realizing it. you're enough, but has it changed? Mm. That, and you know what? That is an everyday deal because we get so much coming at us that tells us we're not enough every single day that you must repeat that to yourself on a regular basis and re to really get it in your bones so that you really, really believe it. So even though, I mean, we can hear it all the time, but we need to hear it all the time, you know, because it's, it's, it's being just uh, sucked out of us every single well, day. Well, your life is an audition. I mean, it's yes. be so much pressure. And then, and, really, and then there's this, the other aspects. It's like, you know, it's, it's not that you're a bad actress or a bad singer yeah. or whatever. It's just that you aren't right for that role. Um, but I can imagine it gets very hard to not start taking it personally. Oh, yeah. I think the ability to let all that go is what how you really free yourself so that you can just be who you authentically are, who you organically are. And, you know, that's your power is that no one else is you. That's your whole power. And I think fully believing that, that no one else is me. And that's, that's an asset and not a liability. <laughs> it's, yeah. what's, you know, it's like what you want to, what you really want to know and really believe regardless of whatever circumstance you're in. I do have to ask, did you find that interviewing was like a little bit jarring or did you feel like it was natural considering you're usually the one on the other side of that? Yeah, it, I, I don't know. I feel, I, I do actually, <laughs> when I first started, I, I listened to some of my earlier interviews. I'm like, girl, shut up. <laughs> Let the people talk. It's not about you and your story. Just 
piped out. So, you know, we struggle with that. I, it's hard because the best ones feel like a conversation, which is where, you know, what we're doing. So sometimes you just get carried away. So that's when the technique of it, I have to remind myself about it because I'm like, yes, and this and this and me and me and what, what me. So I just have to like, I can relate. Chill it out. <laughs> Relate a little too much to this. <laughs> Maybe personally attacked. Feeling very, very, very um, exposed. <laughs> no, it's it's, but it's good. Really, the best ones are are like that. But um, yeah, I've I've gotten better as time has gone on, and and I think especially when it comes to you know you have your questions, but you can always riff off of that depending on the person's um, their experience in their lives and what they want to talk about and, and reading those things. But I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. It's been really good. And I think for most people that are telling me their stories, some of them are newer than us, but it's, it's such a defining moment that it is crystal clear for everyone what it was like and what it felt like. And it was a happy time. So that's ultimately the feel of the book is that it's uplifting and it's, it's happy because a dream was realized, you know? That's awesome. And then you're, and I, I can imagine you're also, fulfilling a, a dream of your own of like you know getting all these dreams compiled into a book so oh yeah hopefully that's a great reminder to yourself that you are enough and a badass so we've been talking about a lot of heavy subjects but we, we have a tradition on this show okay. and it's to ask a question of the day to okay. our guests just to get a little bit you know it's not necessarily about just their career or anything like that but we would love to know if you have a favorite quote and why it is your favorite. Yes. I actually have two. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a tie. There's a tie. <laughs> so I can say more. Yeah. <laughs> yes. My first, the first one is compare and despair. I had to learn that the hard way. It's so easy to do, you know. Uh, when I was first getting out of school or you look at your career and look at where all these people like are at now and where am I and why am I here and why are that, you know, everyone has their own road. <laughs> Everybody has their own road and you just have to trust that where you're, you are where you're supposed to be and just, you know, keep your eye on your own. But that's all you can control anyway, right? It's yeah. just you. The well, rest they always of it. say comparison is the thief of joy. So, there it is. you know, there's, yes. I think it, yeah. it does take a lot for you to actually that in practice though it's like yes, so it really much does. easier said than done and what's the second mm-hmm. one the second one is only the mediocre are always at their best Ooh, i like that i like that a lot yeah mic drop yeah. <laughs> jesus and it just gives you that grace it's like you know you're not mediocre so yeah you're gonna have some days that really suck when you're not gonna make the choices that are you know maybe going to serve you the best. And, um, and then other days you'll be like, I killed that. I badass. I badass that shit. I did. So, uh, you know, at that is, I, I love that one. Only the mediocre are always at their best. Yeah. Cause you also like, you know, when you're excellent like us, uh-huh. um, and not mediocre, you're never really satisfied. You know, there's always that, that next thing. And so I think we, we all kind of tend to be harder on ourselves, um, which can, it makes greatness, but it can cause kind of, you know, like I've been kind of saying all these anxiety and pressure and and all of that. But, you know, I I just love that perspective that it does give yourself a little bit of grace that you're just trying, you're, you're not, 
You're not trying to be mediocre, so you're never yeah. going to be there. Yeah. Love that. Well, this has been a true delight. I'm so happy we got to have you on the program. Me too. This is so wonderful. You guys are amazing. This is that. This has been a, an absolute treat. I've been amazing to meet you. I think that you are uh, just the best, and I can't wait to see Black Canvas whenever we can. Yes. And read the book. When do you think that your book is going to come out? Let's say this year. I do have some time. I'm finishing it up. I'm finishing it up, but yeah, it's it's uh, happening. And and if I may, as I'm talking about the book, I remember talking to Nick Rodero when we were in Rock of Ages together about getting together and t- telling me his story. And uh, we never did it. And it is a regret. I never got a chance to do it because we, we were always thinking, you know, we'll get to it. The show's going to run forever. <laughs> we're, for, you know, we're sitting here in Hollywood for a while. Everything's looking good. We settled into a groove. And, you know, we'll get that story. And I didn't get that story. And the last chapter of my book is going to be about him. I ended up getting his story posthumously from his mom and also from uh, Kristen Hange, who was the director who gave him Rock of Ages was his Broadway debut. So I was able to talk to Kristen, who was also my director over here, and um, and got, get his story that way. But it really pointed up his the single that became so popular during his fight that his song "Live Your Life." Mm-hmm. Baby, get out there and do it. Don't wait. Don't wait. Yeah. Don't don't, wait. don't push it. Don't push it down the road. Feels right? like you got a bunch of time, and we're all guilty of that. Like, oh, tomorrow. You know, I'll get it tomorrow. We all do it. But. Um, I think if I can hear anything from that, and that's what I'm going to leave. My book is like, get out and do it. Live your life. Get after it, man. Get after it. Yes. Time is of the essence. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah. we're definitely going to let you enjoy the rest of your day and go oh, yeah. af- get after it. Um, but again, we cannot <laughs> thank you enough for coming on here. Oh, thank you. It was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. All right. See you next time. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, you ready? I thought you froze for a second. No, I'm just processing that interview. It was like... Yeah, what were your thoughts? You know, um, my thoughts were she's, you know, amazing. And I I didn't know half of those experiences that she's been through in her life. But what my takeaway was, wow, we still have so much work to do. I wrote down the exact... Same thing, because I just the big takeaway from all of that for me was just how how much further we have to go. Like I remember people talking about, um, you know, after the the protests were kind of petering out, and then Kamala ends up being vice president, and 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 seeing so many people write like comments, a lot of people that were or black or of, of any color writing, you know, this is not this is a step, but this is not the solution we still have a long way to go and i and i think she just put that in very obvious terms of that it does not matter that uh you know the the small steps do matter the whole thing was very clear that we yes we do have a long way to go but also you know i couldn't believe the shit that's that i just couldn't believe what she's been through yeah i mean i was really surprised to hear that she that so much was going on when she was growing up in LA because I think in my mind, there's still like, you just automatically assume everything is totally utopian in California and in that area. And it's, it's clearly not. So that, that was 
bit of my ignorance there. So you shouldn't feel like you were the only ignorant one in that I mean, yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm calling well, you ignorant. Right? No, but I like was in that moment. Like honestly, in that moment when she, I called her when the, when the Black Lives Matter, when literally during the riots, the helicopters were flying above my house mm-hmm. and I called her and we were scared and I started, you know, crying on the phone. She was crying. We were, it was, it was, it was a beautiful moment, but it was also like, I couldn't believe it, you know, at the time, what was that? Oh, it's two years, uh, 30, 37, 38 years old that I was still so blind to what, yeah. what is still very prevalent in this country and still pre- very prevalent in Los Angeles. Well, I guess that um, was and- a big thing for me is that I, you know, you kind of almost growing up in the South and being back in the South is it's like you, you think of it as an individual like Southern issue. Totally. And not that it's going on. So to see people in, you know, Flint and you know, New York and all these places where it's supposed to be the progressive areas, they're in the exact same situation that it's still so prevalent. And I don't think that I ever was because I'm in Charleston. I wasn't like surprised that it was happening here, but it was more surprising that it was like global, you know, that it, it, yeah. it, it and that, but I, I think that's like the, the wonderful part about it was that it was finally a global thing and not just you know Martin Luther King and and segregation it was the whole world coming together to kind of be like no this is not okay it actually kind of uh, jazzed me a little bit it's like what can I do what how can mm-hmm. I help and I think that you know we touched on it in it but we really really do have to be anti-racism and, and yes. you have to call you have to call your family out you have to call your your friends out and it's gonna like she said it's gonna be very fucking uncomfortable because that's just that's just what it is especially in Charleston you know my family love everyone in my family but you know we all have our our people that that grew up in the backwoods and they just have very yeah. different views and beliefs and um, you still have to take the time because I think for a long time you think are we you know is it worth it they're never going to change and yeah. I think people are totally capable of change I do I think that it's got kind of gotten to a breaking point with a lot of people in this country with a lot of things of like, no, like we're not, we are going to change this because it's just out of control. And so to, I think a big thing, like you said, is, is to, to, to be vocal about it, to call people out. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's also, this is, you have to put it in front of people's face and you have to like get them to see that they're a part of the problem, even if they're not actively going out there and, and, you know, using foul language or calling I still can't get over the fact how many times Regina was mistaken for a, a stripper or a hooker or okay. anything. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just, Oh, so and gross. That, that even the, as a woman. And that was in the eighties in Nashville. Yeah. I mean, she was probably the only black person for miles. Yeah. And and, that's scary. Uh, very scary. And, uh, yeah, I, she's she's very brave, and I wish you could hear her sing. Oh, I ha- well, I have. I went on obsessively down a YouTube <laughs> spiral <it>. of uh, <laughs> watching her sing, and she's, for everybody out there, an amazing singer. So I feel like she really downplayed her, like, talent in that way because it was like, no, girl, like, you are, like. She, she like, blows the rafters off the place, yeah. 
Yeah, she can yeah. she can really 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 build. And that was the first when we started when she came on the ship and and filled in for one of the singers who had to leave. She just knocked us all <laughs> the back wall with that power. And yeah. um and then she was such a kind human. I knew that we were going to be in each other's lives moving forward because when you find people like her in this business, you keep them around because yeah. they are they are the they are the they are what the entertainment industry should be. Yeah. Well, it's, I thought it was interesting how she said, you know, I was such a shy kid. I felt like I didn't really have anything to say that was important and it's like now the 180 of the empowerment that she has to realize that not only does she have a lot to say, but that she's in a perfect position to say it. Um right. and and that she has that that uh stage, if you will. By being yeah. able to be interviewed by people like us that, you know, need need to get smacked around a little bit. Not in a Will Smith way, um, but in a... <laughs> if anybody deserved to get slapped that day, it was definitely a white person and not... And not. <laughs> oh I will God. say, during that whole thing, and I didn't want to interrupt her at all, but I, I watched that, the whole thing go down with my uh, my black best girlfriend. And she was not just because i mean not only was exactly like regina said like no this is the last thing we need right now like not necessarily like stay in your behave or whatever but like you know have some decorum like this this looks bad but also just to advocate violence as as a means of solving something so as much as i do agree that you know we do have to have some grace and and some forgiveness you know i think we also have to say that it was an unfortunate well, well okay. yes, and Will Smith um, effectively resigned from the Academy of Motion Pictures. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so, and I don't know if that was a, you know, he he put out that he has resigned and he's embarrassed and, you know, that's not indicative of who he is. He he ruined, he basically said, I ruined the night for everybody, for forever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is what I need to do, but I'm wondering how much of that was the Academy saying, you can either resign yeah. or we can kick you out. How do you want to handle yeah. this? I mean, you've got to think, uh, his, his, um, agent slash PR team were just you know that losing they were, it. They were, yeah. What did he do? Yeah. And I still have so many people like at work that are like, I think it was staged. And I'm like, you don't understand. I, I there's no way this, this is not good publicity. It's I know they say all publicity is good publicity, but that that's not what we're talking about here. I think he just snapped. He just yeah snapped the you know and that that plays into all of our conversations about ego narcissism what Mm -hmm. makes you think that you have the right as a human being to get up in front of the world and and physically assault somebody on stage you have to have this nothing can touch me attitude to be able to have that kind of grandiose approach to it you know I, I think a little bit, I, you know, not to get, turn this into a um, Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith yeah, discussion, yeah. but I, I do think there's a little bit of a, you know, there's a lot of background there with Jada and, and like her cheating or open relationship or whatever. I think, he, I agree with you. I think he just kind of like, it's like, this Enough. is the last I can deal with this. Yeah. Stop talking about my wife. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's a little emasculated, you know, yes. in, in a way. Kind of like the guy from the, the director that Regina had to deal with. It was, you know, yeah. clearly taking it out. Hurt people, hurt people. Other than what we talked about before with that we still have so much, uh, so, so far to go in, you know, in this country and race relations. What was, what else was your big takeaway from the interview? I thought that like the, the whole physical manifestation of, of trauma 
was very oh, fascinating with her with her voice thing because you know I kind of went into it thinking oh I lost my voice for a while I was trying to briefly be a singer and went to a voice coach and she was like oh child no you need to go to a speech therapist um and turned out I did have polyps in my throat so that was why I was having these issues so I had to whisper for two weeks Todd can you imagine me whispering for two for two no but you do have a very like low sultry sexy voice yes and that comes that comes straight from the polyps you know that's what really it's the sexy part about it um no that those are those are healed but to hear that this was a physical manifestation of of trauma that she was experiencing it was it it was a new way of looking at like kind of the the body keeps score in my mind and and how much I just really feel like people need to know that 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 like a lot of ailments that a lot of people have I mean we see it regularly with uh heart problems and things like Mm -hmm. that but that just you know in general that you can lose and you've heard of the term people die from a broken heart you know, if somebody's yeah. wife or husband dies mm-hmm. and they, they, they pass four months later or something, it's not a coincidence. It's, it's that they literally, it physically it manifests. Too much for them. Yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, it was just, it was, it was very interesting to hear how she worked through that. Cause it's like kind of, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, it's like, oh, so you're telling me there's no real answer other than I need to calm down. I'd be, <laughs> I mean, that's the last thing you want to be told when you're stressed out is calm down. So, yeah. you know, that, that, but that that was a sign. Her body was saying, you need to calm down. And yeah, I, think take that a rest. That was, I think that was a big thing for people during COVID too. Like, I mean, I know that this happened before COVID, but I think it made people look in the mirror a little bit more and oh, be totally. like, what is, what am I doing? Right. <laughs> what is make me happy? What doesn't make me happy? And, you know, it, it was just, it was powerful to hear that not only she had kind of taken her life back and dealt with that but that it was a growing experience. Also obsessed with the book concept. I know. I know. It's, it's so cool. Just so super cool. pumped. Yeah. Debut. I think she wants to call it debut, but um, it hasn't been confirmed yet. But I think she, it's just the, the, the interviews she's had. I mean, I think one of the stories is there was one guy who was literally living in a crack house and then went wow. on a Broadway audition and left drugs and made his Broadway debut. Broadway, just saving people every just, just Broadway day. saving saving lives. We need more Broadway, I think, is the is the lesson Broadway. here. Yeah. We um, you know, we asked her what her favorite quote was. What is your favorite quote? Okay, not to why. steal the idea that I, I I before this I already had to. So it's not yeah, I'm not you, trying you to, yeah, to uh trample on this. But both of them are Maya Angelou quotes because she is like my favorite writer poet person ever but I would say just so the listeners know I actually have a tattoo that has still I rise on it and and that was actually one of the one that poem where it came from was my first public monologue speech if you will it was through OM I don't know if you remember that back in the day, but that, and it's, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air I rise. And, and I, so I love that, you know, it's just very much a empowering, you know, you can try all you want, but I will still like air, I'll rise. Um, but my, my other one, and I think this is very appropriate for kind of what we're always talking about is, you know, that essentially when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Believe them. Because, you know, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily appropriate to this, but we've talked a lot about, 
narcissism and and people just kind of act in a fool and and you know I think that there should be some forgiveness and grace in some ways but you know really if once you see that come out in somebody don't well you know immediately own. we ignore we ignore our intuition always always ignoring our intuition and that that's my reminder to myself to like stop putting my own empathy and kindness on other people and assuming that they're you know, that they're great and and giving them that grace without the apology, you know, that that that's, I think the difference is that we can forgive and we can move on, but that person has to take accountability. And if they don't, then that's who they are. Right. And we accept that. So how about you? Oh, I have two as well. So we're all just, Oh my God, we're so quotable. (laughs) Got so many quotes. Um, The first one, I I don't know who said either of these, um, but uh, anonymous, anonymous, Never measure your self-worth by what other people think you should have become. Mm, yes. It's very huge for me because, you know, I have always wanted to be on Broadway, always tried to be on Broadway. I've been down to the final for so many Broadway callbacks and still haven't gotten the gig yet. And it's just not my time yet. But I have to remember yeah. that when, when you go home, you know, the worst, the worst question you can ever ask an actor is, what's up next? Yeah. What are you I, doing next? Well, thanks for telling me that now four times, you know, after uh, doing this so many times. No, if people are actually doing stuff, that's great. That's a great question. But, you know, if you don't know, but, and then the second one is, if you find yourself constantly trying to prove your worth to someone, you have already forgotten your value. Oh man, that is powerful. Because that, you know, it it all comes like when she said, self-awareness, being, empowered on your own like that is where I think so many people get lost and and putting too much weight in what other people think and it's got to come from within you know you have to think that you're worthy yeah and Regina um didn't didn't speak on this but knowing her uh, she is a yogi so she she goes to yoga wow she's just cooking and yogiing and singing and writing I did uh, a 60 day Bikram yoga challenge she went every day for 60 days good for her i mean this was a while ago but i mean she was she was so centered and so calm and so thin like (laughs) oh my gosh because i said oh my god she's like it's just sweat you know you just you you just sweat out everything toxins entered bad energy you know all of that i gotta start doing yoga again I know you're making me feel extremely, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't done my workout for today and I, Marty all dressed Neither up. So now how am I going to do it? Well, I mean, I think all around it was a, an inspiring conversation and I'm, I don't know all these people, everyone, every time we talk to you, I'm like, so are we best friends now? Can we hang out again? <laughs> and I don't like she that she it. lives all the way in the West Coast. She's a cool uh, human. And um, I do think the interview went went very well. And I'm, I'm really glad that, that y'all got along so well. And that we, I felt like we learned, I learned so much today. And I'm kind of, yeah. I'm probably going to be thinking about it for the rest of the day, to be quite honest with you, you know, but that that's what, well, why we, we started this podcast, right? Exactly. You had this idea to start this podcast where we, you know, we have to unpack this stuff. It's not easy, but we're trying to do it, you know. Yeah, yeah, we want to. We want this to be a forward-moving thing, right. you know. That, that we've got to have these conversations, or else we won't go anywhere. All right. Well, it has been. This has been really fun. And um, uh, till next time, right? Yeah. Till next time. Bye, guys. Bye.